Let's, let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a book that tells us everything that we need to know. And, and Father, we pray that we'll all really keep growing in your word. Father, we pray that you'll give us real understanding. And, and Lord, as we pursue this church life series, we ask, Lord, that that through it you'll really equip us and, and make us into the church that you want us to be. Father, we, we just ask you now to come and to just speak with us and to just share truth from your word because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, okay, we'll do a little recap because it's been two or three weeks since the last one. And uh, what we've done so far is that we have defined what a church is. We then went on to define what fellowship was. And having done that, in the third study, what we then did was to see that there is a biblical set of priorities for us to meet. Things that the Bible says that we must do in an order of importance and we must make sure that we don't get them mixed up. And what we saw was this, that we have a priority that is a work of love and a labour firstly to the Lord. As a church, our number one priority is our work of faith and our labour of love to the Lord himself. And then we saw that secondly, we are to have a work of faith and a labour of love towards each other as the family of God, and that comes second. And then thirdly, and only after the second one, thirdly, we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the world, unbelievers who are not yet in the family of God. And we saw how vitally important it was to keep that list of priorities in order. If it gets out of order in any way at all, we're going to be in trouble. If we put each other before the Lord, we're going to be in trouble. If we put the world before each other, we're going to be in trouble. Can you see that we must observe that list of priorities that the Bible gives us? And last, and we saw also that each of those three things is made up of two component parts. There are two aspects to each one. And last time, we began with the first of the two aspects of our labour of love and work of faith towards God, our first priority. And we saw that it was worship, that above all else, we are called to be, before God, a worshipping church. And remember, we saw that the very Greek word for worship, proskunio, actually means literally to draw near to kiss, an expression of love. That finally, God wants us to tell him how much we love him, to show him how much we love him. And this we do in worship. But tonight, we move on to the second aspect of our priority to be in submission to God himself. And we're going to see that the second aspect of it is this, that we must be an obedient and a mature church. 
Just go to John 14. John chapter 14, and something that Jesus says, tremendously important. Because last time we saw worship coming together and telling the Lord we love him and expressing that in singing, in praying, in dancing, in shouting, any way you like, twisting and twirling, you'll remember. And that, that is, if you like, our, the spoken aspect of showing God that we love him. But that, without the second aspect, would become an empty farce. John 14, verse 15, listen to what Jesus said. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So can you see that our worship is merely the flip side of our lives of obedience to him? Because it's all very well to come along in worship and say, Lord, we love you, we love you, we love you. That's great, he loves to hear it. But my goodness, he's going to find it a little bit hard to take seriously. If with our lips we're saying, we love you, we love you, we love you, and with our hearts we're doing everything and anything except what he actually wants. Now, this series we're doing is talking about our priorities as a church. And therefore, tonight, we've got to see very, very much that the Lord wants us to be an obedient church and a mature church. He wants us to be growing up in him, coming into adulthood. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians, and particularly this chapter, we are going to be, through this series, in this an awful lot, there is so much here that we're going to be covering in various talks that we do. But in Ephesians 4, and we'll just read from verse 11, a few verses from verse 11. And his gifts, and this is talking about gifts to the church, the context of what Paul is talking about here is being a church. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Now, can you see what Paul is talking about there? Is that a church has got growing up to do. Churches start as baby churches, and they've got to grow up into grown-up and mature and obedient churches. Just go to one John. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll see a very, very similar thing. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. And you get the idea of what John's saying here. He says, I am writing to you, little children, he's talking about the new converts, because your sins are forgiven for his sake. I am writing to you, fathers, there's the golden oldies, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, the in-betweeners, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you children, back to the new converts, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who was from the start. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, can you see what is in John's thoughts there? Little children, young men, fathers. And that's the Christian life, individually, but as a church as well. Start off as a little diddly, up into an in-betweeny, and eventually into a golden oldie. It's maturity, it's growing up in the Lord. And it's this that is the second aspect of our work of faith and labour of love to the Lord himself. He wants us to be a worshipping and a praising and a thankful church as we come together to do that in songs and prayers and things like that. But that is empty. It is empty to say to Jesus that we love him. If the, op if the converse of that, our obedience to him, and therefore growing up in the Lord as individuals and as a church isn't happening. They're two sides of the same coin. And tonight we're looking at the second side. We've got to grow all the time into an obedient and a mature church. So what we're talking about tonight is growth and maturity. I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about our growth in our Christian lives before the Lord. All right. And you see, the church family is the environment in which we are to individually grow up in the Lord. It is God's will, and we'll be back to this in later studies, that the way that we grow up and mature in the Lord as individuals is in the environment of the local family, the church. And that there are two areas which connect when we're talking about growth and maturity as believers and as a church. Two areas. And the first one is this, and we'll be back to these in greater detail in later studies. But the first one is this, that our lives need to be sorted out and sin dealt with. Isn't it? Obviously, that God wants to bring us into being holy believers. He wants to bring us, in fact, to be like Jesus himself. So there's the first area. God wants to sort out our sin, get our lives sorted out, and to deal with our sins and our sinfulness. And the second aspect is this, that our minds need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see is that the important thing there is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And those two things go together. Our lives being sorted out and sin dealt with and our minds being renewed by the Holy Spirit of truth. You can't separate the two. Now let's just have a quick look at each. First of all, our lives need sorting out and our sin needs to be dealt with. And this happens in the context of the church. Back to Ephesians 4. We're going to be toing and froing from Ephesians 4, and we're going to be actually reading that passage several times to make sure we're getting all the different aspects out of it. Ephesians 4, first of all, verse 13. Look what he says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
And the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus is quite simply that his life was dealt with, that there was no sin to deal with. That is what God is bringing us to individually. Go down into verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. There you have it, that growing up in maturity, our lives being sorted out. Let's go down into verse 17, and look how Paul concludes this part. He says, Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now what Paul's saying, look, you're Christians now, you mustn't be like non-Christians. You mustn't, your life shouldn't any longer be like they were when you got converted. Obviously, it's not going to be all at once. We're not dealt with overnight. It's a lifelong process. But the point is, Paul's saying that indeed if we're following Jesus, then our lives need to be fundamentally different to the lives of unbelievers around us. Into verse 19, they have become callous and given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. We shouldn't be greedy to practice uncleanness, we should be greedy to practice holiness and the will of the Lord. Go down into verse 22. He says, put off your old nature, which belongs to your former life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. Then in verse 25, therefore, putting away falsehood, let everyone speak the truth with his neighbour. Can you see, Paul is dealing there with the moral aspect of our faith. Now what we're talking about here is the fact that once we become Christians, once we're justified, once we've been set free individually from the penalty of sin, and we will never end up in the lake of fire, but then God wants to go on to set us free from the power of sin. Sanctification, of course, that has been dealt with in great detail in the Salvation series, and I'm not going to go over that at all here. But can you see the point that is coming out that it's God's will that we be the kind of church, the kind of family that's needed whereby we can individually before the Lord be maturing. And you remember we saw that the very word church in Greek, ecclesia, means people who have been called out of the world. And that one of the fundamental ideas behind the word, the word holiness is to be set apart. That God has called us out of the world to be set apart for his holiness. So that therefore the church is a called out people. And it's this called out of the sin of the world that is precisely what Jesus has set the church up for us in order to experience that. And in fact, it's being part of the church that enables each one of us individually to be becoming continuously more set apart from God. Individually, we cannot go it alone with the Lord. You cannot grow in the Lord and mature as an individual Christian, full stop. It's within the context of being part of a church part of a local family of God that our lives can actually be dealt with. And that what God's plan for us, each one individually, is this. We're his children. We're his sons. We're his daughters. And we have that phrase, don't we, like father, like son. God wants us to be like him. Jesus was absolutely like God because he was God. And that now what Jesus is doing, he's working in us so that we 
can become like Jesus. You should be in Ephesians 4, look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God actually wants the fullness of Jesus to be being manifested more and more through our lives. Look at verse 24. We didn't uh, read it before, but now we will. We saw in verse 22, Paul said, put off the old nature, but now he says in verse 24, and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what the Lord's working in us individually for is bringing us to the end of ourselves so that Jesus can begin to be manifested through us. But that can only happen in the context of a church. So therefore, as individuals, we must be growing and maturing and having our lives dealt with. But also, as a church, we must be in obedience to God and growing into maturity as well. Now, the second aspect of that is that our minds need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Because Paul is saying here that the nature of Jesus, Jesus can only be revealed through us as the Holy Spirit renews our mind. Everything we do begins in our mind. It begins with an idea. And it's only as Jesus is being revealed in our minds that he's going to be revealed in our lives. Go to Romans 12 and we'll see Paul saying exactly the same thing. And in Romans 12 and verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that is the first part, having our sin dealt with. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The point about a sacrifice is that you've killed it. Can you see? Death to self and being alive to Jesus. And then he goes on, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you see, the thing is that our Christian lives develop through two things. We grow as Christians by being obedient to the Lord in what we do know to be his will. But secondly, we need to grow in the Lord through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, revealing more and more what God wants. It's only as you realise what God's will is that you can move into it. So that, for instance, everything that God has revealed to you thus far, make sure you're in obedience to it. That's the first part. But if we are, then God will go on to show us other things all the time that he wants us to know. And so it's tremendously important for us to be understanding more and more the will of the Lord. And that can only happen by the Holy Spirit revealing more and more of the truth of God's word to us. For instance, many Christians suffer from a general feeling of condemnation. 
this idea that God's got it in for me, that God's going to let me have it one day, and this fear that when they die, they'll, they'll kind of find that they end up in the lake of fire anyway, and walking around feeling condemned all the time by God because of their sins. Now, in that situation, when a Christian like that eventually gets it through their head, that there is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus, they're free. Can you see that? It's the truth applied to us and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit that is all the time enabling us to move into greater obedience to God all the time as God opens up the areas in our life that he's moving us into. Tremendously important. Eternal security. When the truth of eternal security from the Bible gets through to you, you will never again suffer from fear of loss of salvation. And many Christians do. Again, the truth sets us free. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and see what Paul says about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 16 he says this, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Rhetorical question. But look what he says next, but we have the mind of Christ. Obviously, when you were born again, Jesus came to live with you. And where a person goes, everything about him goes. Where I go, my arms and legs go. But where I go, my brain and therefore my thought life goes as well. When Jesus came to live in us, he brought his mind with him. Of course he did. Jesus lives in us, therefore the very mind of Jesus is mixed in with our minds. And the Holy Spirit wants to, well, if you like, I mean, it's like someone said once, you can't brainwash a Christian because they're out of their minds already. And it, it's true. God wants us out of our mind into the mind of Christ so that we're able to have the, the Holy Spirit literally thinking through us and renewing our minds so that all the time our thoughts, our ideas are conforming to what the Lord wants to do in us. And therefore, as soon as we talk about the mind mental activity, we're back down to the truth. It's the truth that sets them free. You'll remember that Jesus said that, alright. Let's just go to John 17. John 17 and in verse 17, and this was when Jesus was praying for his disciples, which included us, he said, sanctify them in your truth. Now we've seen that sanctification, God wants to sort our lives out and set us free from sin. But that is done through the Holy Spirit revealing the truth of God to us. So Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth. But the question is then this, right, we need the truth, but where do we get that truth from? Where does it come from? Let me read you the whole of John 17, verse 17. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The truth that we need to grow individually in the Lord and as a church in the Lord is in the Bible. And that is why it is vitally important that we must ensure that we are all the time learning more and more from the Bible. All the time receiving more and more and more of the truth of the Bible. 
And remember, we're seeing that God is working in us as individuals, but in the context of being part of a church, a family of God. And therefore, two things have got to be the case. We must be receiving more and more truth from the Bible individually, but also as a church. Can you see that? You've got to be receiving teaching individually, but we've also got to be growing in teaching as the corporate church as well. Go into Ephesians 1, and I just want to show you the incredible emphasis that Paul the Apostle laid on this very thing, the importance of receiving the truth of the Bible, Bible teaching. Ephesians chapter 1, and first of all, verse 16, and look what he prays. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, this is what he's praying for them, for a church. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now what Paul's saying there, get the knowledge of God. It's only as you're getting the truth, the knowledge of God, that you'll be able to grow into what the Lord has for you. Go over into Philippians. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, Paul is saying, if you want to have your life sorted out, then make sure you're getting the knowledge and discernment of the truth of God's word. Go over into Colossians. Again, chapter 1 and also verse 9 and 10. And he says, and in these epistles, this is written to churches. Paul is writing to them as individuals, but he's writing to them as churches. This is his burden for churches. And he says, and so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Can you see we're talking learning truth, learning truth, learning truth. That's the emphasis here. And he says, to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's the tie-up again. We're only going to grow as Christians individually and grow as a church if all the time we are also growing in the truth of what the Bible teaches us. And of course, we know that in the Christian life, everything is by faith. We know that justification is by faith. We know that sanctification is by faith. Everything in the Christian life is faith. But what is faith? Faith is acting on the truth, isn't it? That's what faith is. I mean, you're sitting on chairs tonight. That's an act of faith. 
you have said, if I sit on this chair, it is not going to collapse. <laughs> Although we know Denzel's did, <laughs> and frequently does. But nevertheless, can you see, faith is acting on the truth. It's true that these chairs will support you, except the one Denzel's on, probably. And therefore, you've put your faith in that chair. It's acting on the truth. So we can only grow in faith as we discover more and more of God's truth that he wants us to act on in obedience. And of course in Romans 10 verse 17, and the AV gets this absolutely right, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's only as we are growing constantly in the truth of God's word that we can also grow in faith, have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit and our lives sorted out before God and sin dealt with. And what I want to show you now is the commitment of the early church to Bible teaching. I think this is going to stun you, actually. The commitment of the church to Bible teaching. We are not in any way saying that the early church were committed to Bible teaching to the expense of anything else. But boy, were they committed to Bible teaching. Go first of all to Acts 2. And incidentally, the reason that they were so committed to the Bible teaching was because that is exactly what the apostles told them to do. That was the emphasis of the apostles. We've already seen it from Paul. Now, Acts 2, verse 41. Now, look at that. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, administrative problems. Did that stop the early church? No. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the love feast, and the prayers. Can you see that? They devoted themselves to these things, and first in that list is that they devoted themselves to teaching. Go to chapter 20 in Acts. We're going to read a little story about something that happened to Paul when he was spending time with the church in Troas. Acts chapter 20 and verse, start at verse 7. Right, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, it says we here because it's written by Luke and Luke was there at the time. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, I the love feast, Paul taught with them, intending to depart on the morrow. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now notice two things. Everyone had to be up the next morning including Paul, who had to set off on a very, very long journey the next day. And they've come together, all right, as a church. They've got someone who's anointed to teach the Word of God, the Apostle Paul. He was a Bible teacher as well. And what happens? Well, the first session, as we're going to see, goes on until midnight. My word, all right? There were many lights in the upper chamber where we were gathered. I'm not surprised it was getting dark by then. Now, listen to this. And a young man named Eutychus was sitting on the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So, I mean, okay, they kept going. <laughs> right, okay, fine. Yeah, they kept going until midnight. But once midnight came, they wanted to keep going. 
And this young lad was so tired, he fell asleep. Now look what happened. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down. Incidentally, for those people listening to the tape, the laughter is because we've just spotted a young man fast asleep in the corner. Anyway, he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. He fell out the window. He's dozing on the window, and he drops out the window, and he's three stories up. So, of course, you know, he reaches the bottom, and he curls his toes up, doesn't he? He's a goner. Now then, look. Question. Is this going to interrupt their Bible study? They've been at it all day. They've been at it up until midnight. They've overshot midnight. They're now in the middle of the night and they've just had a bloke fall out the window and snuff it, all right? Now, is this going to stop the Bible study? It's a very long Bible study, isn't it? Is this going to get in the way of it? Well, Paul went down, bent over him, and embracing him, said, Do not be alarmed, his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, here they have another meal, it's kind of breakfast now, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And when they took the lad away alive, they were not a little comforted. I mean, it's got to be the Bible understatement of the year, isn't it? <laughs> but can you see, what we're talking about here is that there's a church and they've got someone with them who is anointed to teach the Word of God, i.e., this church has access to the truth of God's Word. And they come together on the Sunday and they literally keep going until the next morning. Now, we don't have to do this here, because I'm here every week, aren't you glad? But can you see, with this church, they got Paul, and they had him for one day. Look, look, 24 hours worth of Bible study. Can you see the commitment? They were dying for it. They, they, isn't this different? Isn't this different from Christians today? You know, isn't it sad, the number of people who aren't here for the Bible studies? Isn't that sad? I think that's sad. And we need to pray that believers will fall in love with the truth of God's Word. It's absolutely wonderful. And we're seeing here the commitment of the early church to it. Go over to 2 Thessalonians. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, he spent time with them. And they're getting into a little bit of quandary, a little bit, you know, false teaching coming in. 2 Thessalonians 2, and first of all, we'll read verses 1 and 2. And he says this, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, he's talking here about the rapture, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, basically, what's happening is that false teaching has got into the church, that the rapture's been and gone and they've missed it and they're in the tribulation. Of course, they're panicking. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I would be. See, and they've been, you know, they think they they've missed the rapture and that they're in the tribulation, you see, and panic, panic, panic. So Paul's writing to them to put them at ease, and it's a church he's been to, he's spent time with them, and he says, now look, calm down, lads, don't get excited, let's, let's kind of think this out. But look at verse 5. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? Now, the point I want to bring out is this. In the life of the, the average believer and the average church today hasn't got the full 
foggiest about the teach about the rapture and the second coming and the millennium. I mean, if you talk to Christians about the second coming, I mean, they'll state that they believe it's going to happen and they'll leave it there. And, I mean, talk to anyone, they don't know. They're confused about it. And I've heard people say, I don't think anyone could ever understand it. It's too complicated. I mean, my answer to that is, why would God bother to bang a doctrine in the Bible that's too complicated for anyone to understand? Oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And you see, the point is this. Paul's writing to a church that he spent some time with. And he's saying, look, lads, we went over all this when I was with you. Now, you mustn't get the idea that Paul visited this church and all he talked about was the second coming. But so intense was the Bible teaching they were doing that as well as doing all the basic salvation, sanctification, he'd have covered all that, baptism of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, holiness, he'd have done all that. But on top of that, he taught them everything about the second coming and future prophecy, about the Antichrist, you know, the rapture. They knew it all. Now, can you see what an incredible relationship to teaching the early church did? Here was a, a, a church and Paul expected them to understand the Bible teaching of the end times. And when they started to get screwed up about it, he wrote and he said, look lads, don't panic. He says, but don't you remember we did this? If you'd have believed what I'd said, you wouldn't be in a panic now. Can you see what's the, the love of, of the, the truth of the word of God that there was in the early church? The second coming was not a great mystery to the early church like it is to churches today because they took the Bible so seriously and they really gave time in order to receive as much as they could of what it taught. Now then, therefore, really what we're seeing is that here in this church we have our teaching on the Tuesday nights. And of course, our Tuesday nights are so vitally important for two reasons. Reason number one, we learn more from God's Word. But reason number two, we learn more of God's words together as a church. Can you see that? We've all got to learn more of the Word of God. But on the Tuesdays, we're learning more of the Word of God as a church. And that makes all the difference. And here, because we run the Tate Library and because all the teaching done here is taped, there is no excuse for anyone who believes themselves to be part of this church. There is no excuse for not receiving the teaching. I mean, obviously, we accept that obviously some people get in circumstances where they literally can't be at the meeting. No problem with that. But the beauty of running tapes is that even if you can't make the meeting, you can get the tape and get the teaching. So, therefore, people can be receiving everything of the teaching, whether they can actually be here or not. And you see, the thing is this. People can't miss the teaching that we're doing as a church and then expect to play a full role in what we're doing. And for this simple reason. If they're not receiving teaching, how are they going to know what role to play? What is the good of coming along to a church, plonking yourself down, says, here I am, I'm part of the body of Christ, I'm ready. Well, they won't know what to do. For a start, they won't know how to worship if they weren't here last time or if they didn't bother to get the tape. Can you see? It's tremendously important. You can't play a full role in a church if you're not receiving the teaching 
that the church is being given. Because quite simply, you won't know where the rest of us are at, will you? Can you say you won't know what we're doing? You won't know where we are in the law, what the law's teaching us. Remember, I've said this before, it actually brought forward a little bit of controversy from some quarters, but nevertheless, I stand by it. The truth of the matter is this, you can't march in step if you don't know what the orders are. And it's largely Tuesday nights and our Bible teaching that we get the orders. We're getting our orders from God tonight. You can't act on orders that you haven't heard. Go back to Acts chapter 2, that verse that we saw earlier. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we, we saw that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, four things there. Teaching, prayer, the love feast, and fellowship. Now, what you mustn't do is decide to pick out fellowship or, say, the prayer meeting that we're starting soon and the love feast, but to say, oh, well, no, I'll skip the teaching. That's not important. Can you see how ridiculous that is? This is a package here. It's the whole lot. And if you miss bits out, it's dabbling. But can you see how important it is that we are all receiving the teaching that God is given. And again, I emphasise, because of the tape ministry, even when people, even if people can't be here at the meetings, they can still receive the teaching. Go back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Note what he says. He's talking about growing up in the Lord and he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Now, what Paul's talking about here is what I call the latest doctrinal fad syndrome. And it's well, it's well in on the Christian scene today. There's always a latest Christian fad, isn't there? And everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. And you see, the thing is, unless you're constantly growing in your understanding of the Bible, you are going to fall for that syndrome. You'll end up kind of bombing around, as so many Christians do, bombing around to loads and loads of meetings at different places all the time, you see, and uh, swallowing all the teaching that's given without questioning it. Now, if you're receiving Bible teaching all the time, regularly, over weeks and months and years, you see, the thing is that then, if you come across the latest doctrinal fad, you will know that it's a doctrinal fad, and you will know precisely what's wrong with it and why because you will know the Bible well enough to test it. Notice what Paul says, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. The latest doctrine syndrome bandwagon thing is pure spiritual childishness. And we're seeing that God wants us to grow up so that whatever we're hearing, we're growing in the knowledge of the Bible sufficiently to test it against the Bible. But what you can't do is this. We know the Bible says test all things and they've got to be tested against the teaching of the Bible. How can you test anything if you don't know the Bible? 
Can you see the point? So teaching becomes of incredible importance for us individually and as a church. And let me say something else as well. That also, it is not good enough to say, but I'm doing my personal Bible reading, that's enough. And I'll tell you why. When you get Christians who rely purely on their own personal Bible reading, the dangers of deception are quite amazing. Every heresy, every false doctrine going around the body of Christ today is being done by picking out bits and pieces of the Bible totally out of context and without relating them to everything else that the Bible says. And that can happen in purely personal Bible teaching. I am not saying to stop personal Bible reading. Neither am I saying that God won't teach you in your personal Bible reading. Of course he will. But it's only as you're receiving anointed Bible teaching within the body of Christ that you're going to realise, hey, yeah, what I read in the Bible the other day, I totally misunderstood that. Oh, I'm glad I... Can you see? It's a mixture of all three. I am not saying that God will not teach you through your personal Bible reading. Of course he will. But even in your personal Bible reading, you must test everything you think you're receiving by the Word of God. Back to square one. You've got to know the Word of God in order to be able to do that. So this kind of, well, I just read my Bible and go as the Lord leads me, uh, dodgy, very, very dodgy. Remember, every heresy started with a Christian somewhere reading his Bible and just going as the Lord led him. Can you see that we've got to make sure that we're learning together in the safety of the community of the church? And when you're receiving the Bible teaching in the body of the church, when you're receiving that, then you'll find that you will learn so much more from your personal Bible reading. It doesn't in any way diminish your personal Bible reading. It will enhance it incredibly. All right. Tremendously important to understand that. Right, okay, so what have we seen? We've seen firstly that our lives need to be sorted out and sin dealt with. And we've seen that our minds need to be renewed. And the, what we're seeing tonight is that this must be happening individually, but it has also got to be happening to us as a corporate church. I must grow individually in the Lord. You must grow individually in the Lord. But the point is, we have got to grow individually together as a church. And you can't have the one without the other. One tree is not a forest. And in the church, God wants a forest. He doesn't just want individual believers as trees dotted haphazardly all over the landscape. God's into forests. He wants to bring the trees together. And it's only then, if you think about it, there's a very profound sense in which a tree can only find its identity in a forest. Can you see what I mean? Uh, you know, I mean, that is open, I know, to some kind of philosophical tearing apart. But can you see the thought there? It's only in the company of other trees that an individual tree has a reference point and knows what it is. So individually, we've got to be gathered together in order for us to really be growing as 
uh, individual Christians. But we've got to now, now move on to a very important principle, and this is really the nub of what we're doing tonight. And it's this. It's a principle. Underline this in your hearts. It makes absolute sense, and I don't think anyone will question it, but when you kind of apply it to life in general, you'll see that the implications are really quite far-reaching. And it's simply this. We've seen God grows us and matures us individually by being part of a church. Right. Now then, here's the principle. You are far more likely to cultivate, cultivate obedient individual believers if you place them in an obedient corporate church. Now, can you see the principle? You're far more likely to cultivate mature and obedient individual believers if you place them in an obedient corporate church. What do I mean? Well, this, in Matthew 16, we, uh, verse 18, we've already seen that Jesus said, I will build my church. And, of course, the emphasis that I want there is this. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, that's the emphasis. The church is Jesus. Jesus is. It's his church. And therefore, he must be free to run it his way. One of the things we've seen is that the church is Jesus' home. It's where he lives. And if he's the head of the house, which he is, then it's up to him to decide what goes on in the church, in his house. And it is also up to him to decide what doesn't go on in his house. So therefore, the church, because it is Jesus's, has got to make sure that everything about it is in keeping with what Jesus actually wants for his church. Now, how do we know what Jesus wants for us as his church? We're back to the same answer, the Bible. We know what Jesus wants for us as a church through his word. We've got a New Testament. A testament is another word for a will. It's his will. The Bible is Jesus' will. We say, oh, Lord, I want to do your will. Read the Bible and do what it says. It's as simple as that. And so, therefore, what we've got to understand is this. A church must ensure that it is in absolute obedience to the teaching of the Bible concerning being a church. Can you see what I'm saying? We're at absolute first base. If the church is there to enable us to grow up into mature and obedient individuals, how can a church hope to cultivate obedient Christians in it if the church, as a church, is not itself being obedient to what the Bible teaches about being a church? Have you got the point? It's first base. Unless you clear this up, a church can never, ever go anywhere. Therefore, each church must ensure that it is running itself, organising itself, that everything about it is in absolute accordance 
to what the Bible teaches about being a church. Can you see, you can't put a believer in a church and say, right, grow up in the Lord now. We want to see you as part of this church moving into an ever-increasing obedience to the Lord. Now, how can a church say that to an individual in it if, as a church, it is in disobedience to what the Bible teaches about being a church? Can you see this fundamental principle? How can believers grow into obedience in churches which are themselves as churches being disobedient to God's word? Can you see the fundamental problem? This highlights the folly of the churches today in our country. Can you see how important it is? When we did the tradition series, and if anyone hasn't heard that, I do ask you to get it, it's very important. But if our tradition series showed us how not to do it as a church, then it's this church life series that is going to show us how we should be, how we ought to act as a church. I mean, for instance, the Bible teaches, and we've seen quite clearly, that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal. Period. Can you see? That leaves no room for playing around with little bits of wine and little bits of bread. That leaves no room for saying, well, it's very impractical. We're quite a large church. Be a bit impractical to do a meal, wouldn't it? Well, I'll tell you, not many churches today, and definitely not in this country, are as early as the early, uh, as big as the early church. The early church got 8,000 converts in the first week of coming into being, and when Jews numbered crowds, they only numbered the men. But nevertheless, did Paul say, well, look, in view of this growth, you know, in view of all these people getting converted, let, let, let's drop the Lord's Supper. I know. Let's, let, let's be practical about this. We'll do a little bit of bread and a little sip of wine. No. The Bible teaches that the Lord's Supper is a church meal, period. That's what we're going to do. That's what all the other churches should be doing. It's important. It's what Jesus in the Bible has said he wants churches to do. Another example. The Bible teaches that people who get converted should be baptised as soon as possible after they've been converted. And that's that. Period. If Jesus had wanted baptism classes or infant baptism, he would have said that in the Bible. He hasn't. He wants people to be uh, baptised as soon after conversion as possible. And that's that. It's important. The Bible does not teach a priesthood-laity divide. The Bible does not teach that the church is led by a clergy with a uniform, with a special position before God mediating for their congregation. The Bible does not teach that, and that's that. Can you see? It matters to Jesus. He's given us what he wants. For churches to be obedient, they've got to be in conformity to these things. That is why here we, we work so hard before the Lord to make sure that, that everything about us is as the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that eldership is male. Period. There's no argument. 
There's no, well, you can discuss it, but there's no real discussion. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. That closed the debate 2,000 years ago when the debate wasn't even on. It should never have opened up. Can you see? Are you getting the point? How can you expect, how can a church expect its people as individuals to grow into deeper personal obedience to God when the church itself is in disobedience to the teaching of the Bible about what a church actually is. The church does not teach confirmation. Period. There's no argument. Can you see that? How can you expect individual believers to grow in the law when one of the first things, if you're in the C of E, when one of the first things you've got to check up on if they become a Christian is have they been confirmed? Because if they haven't, they can't get their little bit of bread and they'll say, well, oh, can you see, what a start for a new convert in the Anglican Church. Can you see how terrible it is? Get the principle. It's tremendously important. You can't cultivate obedient individual believers in a church that is itself being disobedient to God as a church. And until you've got that sorted out, that is the first base. Unless you move out from there, you're wasting your time. But one question that's got to be asked, because you know that I go on and on about these things, you know, sort of like, you know, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper and no clergy and eldership is male and stuff like that. And, uh, and that's sometimes uh, people think, well, yeah, but really, Beresford, do these things matter? all that much. I mean, yeah, we accept that the Bible teaches it. I mean, you've convinced us, yeah, we can see it for ourselves. You know, we can see that all those practices out there aren't what the Bible teaches. And we can see that there are lots of things that the Bible does teach that the churches out there, many of them, don't do. And they say, we accept that, but they ask, look, really, does it matter? With so many other churches going against the, the uh, Bible, isn't it better, they say, in the interests of Christian unity to just keep quiet and not to rock the boat? So what they say is, don't push these things because it's not worth the effect it has on other believers. Now that question has got to be answered and it's got to be answered in this way. This talk is dealing with our priority of our relationship to God. Do you get the point? What other believers think is totally irrelevant to what we're dealing with here. Can you see, we're saying our number one priority is that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the Lord. Our work of faith and labour and love to each other and other believers come second. We're dealing here with our faithfulness to God himself. So therefore, we're talking about, as a church, we must be obedient to God. And these things that many Christians just want to compromise on, the point is this, whether other Christians care about them or not isn't the point. Jesus does care about them. It might not be important to other churches that they don't baptise people as soon as they get converted. That might not be important to them. And they say, so why make such a big deal about it? I'll tell you, because it's important to Jesus. Can you see? 
In the Bible, Jesus has told us the way he wants it done. And Jesus is only going to tell us things that are important to him. And if Jesus didn't want things done a particular way, he wouldn't have given us the particular way to do them in the Bible. Nowhere do I find a verse in the Bible, in effect, where the Holy Spirit is saying to us, well, okay, chaps, here's the basic ch teaching. I'd love it, you know, if, if you were like this, it'd be great, but don't, don't bother yourselves. Don't want you to fall out with anyone else. Don't bother, you know, if, if you've got a better way, you... I'm not aware of a verse like... I haven't found a verse like that in the Bible. But what I do find in the Bible is God's will. What I do find in the Bible is Jesus saying, I will build my church. And seeing as that delectable ex-reg 1100 Gulf Sea standing out there is mine and Belinda's, it is up to us and no one else what happens to it. Can you see? And if you decided, oh, what a fantastic, best car in the fellowship, ex-reg 1100 Gulf, oh, I think I'll go out for a drive in that. Beats my BMW. <laughs> now, if you decided, yeah, I mean, you have no right. It's not up to you what happens to our car. And it is not up to us what happens to the church. It is not up to Christians how the church is. It's up to Jesus. And Jesus has told us very, very specifically the way he wants things. You see, remember... We're dealing here with our priority to God, not each other, our priority to God. Our work of faith and our labour of love to him. Now, you see, this is the reason why ecumenism, the ecumenical movement, this let's all get together, let's, you know, let's kind of, don't worry about, you know, let's forget about what the Bible says, don't, don't you worry about it, we'll all get together and we'll find a compromise and we'll do it like that. This is the reason why the ecumenical movement is pure unfaithfulness to God. Because when Christians say, look, the only way we can come together is to compromise on the Bible, well, they might think that's the way forward, but God doesn't. We are not dealing here with our responsibility to other believers. We start on that next time. We're dealing here with our responsibility to God. And therefore, that is why when believers say, well, look, these things, look, don't, don't push them. They don't. Let's not upset people. Let's, let's not emphasise these things. It doesn't matter. Let's bury it because it just causes trouble with other Christians. The Christians who say that have got their priorities wrong. And I'll tell you, the priority in their life is the church first, then the Lord, then the world. Can you see why it's so important that this list of priorities must never get the wrong way round? For the man who says that my priority is God first and then the church, that man will stand for what the Bible says. And if there's not a church in the country that will have anything to do with it, with him, he will say, so be it. This is talking about my relationship with God. But Christians who think that the church comes first say, don't, look, don't, don't worry, don't push it what the Bible says. Let's just, you know, let's concentrate on unity. I'll tell you, unity at the expense of obedience to God is not worth the time you spend trying to get it. Unity based on unbiblical compromise is a mockery of God's word. And I'll tell you, God hates it. 
God yearns for unity amongst his people, but not at the cost of saying, right, Lord, we'll get together, but only if you agree to come second. Uh-uh, no, it's the Lord first. And that is why it is so vitally important that a church organises it in itself in every way according to what the Bible says. God comes first. And when it comes to running a church, when it comes to the government of the church, when it comes to baptism, and all these things we'll be dealing with in the rest of this series, when it comes to these things, you've got two choices. You either do what God wants, what the Bible says. You either do what God wants, or you do it some other way. Now, it's my understanding of the Bible that when a Christian does something other than what God has told them to do, my Bible calls that disobedience to God. Can you see? We do not want to be a church that is fundamentally in disobedience to God the whole of its life. We want to be a church that is fundamentally in obedience to God by being obedient to the teaching of his word right from the start. Now, not in perfect obedience, because as a church we will grow in our understanding of what the Bible teaches about the church. But the point is this. The moment we as a church realise that there's some area where we're not in conformity to God's word, we'll change it. Can you see? If we find out we're doing something and we discover that the Bible says don't do it, we'll stop. But if we find that there's something we're not doing that the Bible says we should be doing, we'll say, oh, thank you for telling us, Lord. Let's get that underway. Can you see the principle? It's first base. If a church isn't built on the foundation that its number one priority is to God, which means being a worshipping church, but a worshipping church that is rock bottom in obedience to the teaching of the Bible. Now, I want you, this isn't easy, things like this aren't easy to say, and they're not easy to hear, but nevertheless it's true. When believers get together for a good old worship up, a good old praise up, and they say, let's bury doctrine, don't worry about that, nevertheless, let's all get together, all right, and let's just concentrate on worship, rather than what the Bible says about the church. Can you see, no matter how wonderful they may think that worship is, because worship with hundreds of people or loads of people in big meetings can be very enjoyable to the flesh. Can you see? Worship, regrettably, can simply turn into the Christian version of the old deers on the promenade at Margate singing along with the organ. Can you see? There's something pleasurable in community singing. And I want to put to you that I think there is a lot of worship going on amongst believers today, however lively, however charismatic, however in obedience to what the Bible teaches about worship, but because there is not also the fundamental obedience to God in the Bible's teaching about the church, I have a feeling that there is sometimes more community singing going on than actual worship. Because I come back to where we started. Worship is showing the Lord we love him. Proscunio, to draw near to kiss, all right? But Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. 
And if the church of Jesus Christ in Great Britain truly loves Jesus, then ought it not to be sometimes a little bit more preoccupied with what Jesus wants through the teaching of the Bible, and sometimes a little bit less preoccupied with these mega-national praise-ups that we have, that simply confirm people in the very deceptions they're already in. I'll tell you, believers in unscriptural churches go along to these praise-ups as unscriptural churches, and you know what happens? They come along saying, isn't it wonderful how God's blessing us as a church? Obviously, being scriptural doesn't matter. Now, can you see what Satan's doing there? That's very, very subtle. And that is why today there's got to be such a, 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 a really prophetic emphasis that what matters is the church, and we've got to apply it to ourselves as a church, being obedience, obedient to God, all right, in what the Bible teaches about being a church. I return to the principle, how can you expect a believer to grow in ever-increasing obedience to God in a church that is itself in disobedience to God as a church? Is that not ridiculous? Is that not a bit like sort of say you've got, you know, children growing up and, uh, you know, maybe rather than, uh, you know, sort of uh, saying, well, you come along to the, you know, come along to our church, you know, sort of be involved in the worship, get Bible teaching, learn how to live. Isn't it a bit rather like saying, well, I know this crook down the road. Why don't you go and spend a bit of time with him? You know, how could a crook teach someone how to be moral? How can someone who's out of order in his own life teach someone how to be in order in theirs? How can a disobedient church teach an individual Christian to be obedient? To, you know, to be obedient to God. I see a problem there. In fact, I see an absolute logical impossibility. If a church wants to be in limited obedience to God, fine. But it will only <coughs> ever raise up other believers who are also only obedience to God in a limited way, all right? So then we've really got to make sure that uh, we're absolutely in submission to God in regards to what the Bible says about us being a church, all right? So then, what we've seen so far is that our number one priority is to God. That first, our priority to each other and our priority to the world comes second and third. And that's important, because if you don't get number one right, you'll never be able to help other people. Can you see? A disobedient church is not going to be effective into the world. It can make converts, but not disciples, and Jesus wants disciples. All right. Think of the start in life. That, that some people who are going to be converted in this big mission going on, think of how they're going to have to start their Christian lives. I rejoice that they're going to be saved. I rejoice wherever the gospel is preached. But I feel so sad that so many believers, new believers, are going to be plonked in disobedient churches and be told, you make sure you're obedient to God. It's an absolute folly. 
So that unless you get number one straight, you won't get the others right at all. But we've seen our number one priority is to the Lord himself. And that means we're going to be a worshipping church. And the other side of that coin is that we are going to be an obedient and a mature church. Because as a church we're going to be obedient, that is going to encourage each one of us individually to grow into deeper obedience before the Lord personally. And what's so beautiful is this. As we all grow into deeper obedience before the Lord personally, then as a church we will be coming deeper and deeper into obedience to God. And you've got the most incredible vicious circle. Not a vicious circle, a glorious circle. All right and we'll really see the Lord working through us. Now, next time, we're going to move on to number two, and we're going to start seeing what the Bible says about our responsibility to each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Right, we'll end it there.